Have you ever been standing in your closet saying, Ugh, I have nothing to wear? Or in front of your fridge saying that there's nothing to eat? Or how about flipping through cable TV, Netflix, Hulu, and Prime only to turn it off and claim that there's nothing to watch? An ungrateful heart can be the cause of what French philosopher Alexis de Tocqueville called a strange melancholy in the midst of abundance. Or it might actually be a deeper issue. Girl, we're going to dive deep today, so go grab that coffee and get ready, because here we go. This isn't a game of ding-dong ditch, and don't worry, I'm not a solar panel salesman. I'm just here to see you, friend. Whether you have spit-up stains and cluttered counters, or you're still in your heels from work and just getting dinner started, take a minute and come sit with me. Welcome to the JAR Podcast with your host, Lydia. Certified teacher, homeschool boy mom, oh lord help me, and marriage ministry leader, bringing you tough lessons from my own journey to soul health and wholeness. Together each week, we'll discuss our struggles, pain, and shame. We'll combat labels and lies with biblical truth, and we'll work through our mess and come out stronger, more confident, and rooted in our identity in Christ. So move your pile of laundry over. Better yet, let me help you fold it while we talk. Thanks for letting me in. Now let's get real. That melancholy feeling that de Tocqueville was referencing is a symptom of a foundational sin issue. Every single sin is rooted in idolatry. It goes against God's first and second commandment that there should be no other God before him and that we aren't supposed to make any idols. And the deeper Hebrew meaning of the word before doesn't mean that there shouldn't be any other gods before him and he should be in first place. There's no competition. There's no place. God just is the competition. He doesn't want to vie for anything. He's not in a, in a competition. He's a jealous God. So he will be first and only. That melancholy feeling indicates a case of idolatry, which according to Timothy Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods, is an incomplete joy of this world and building your life on it. So no, it might not look like anything obvious like the golden calf that the Israelites worshipped in the Old Testament. And in fact, our hearts tend to take good things and turn them into ultimate things. And we end up deifying them and craving them and we think we have to have it to be happy and this deep desire ends up making us break rules or hurt others or even ourselves in the process we compromise our values and we do things we thought we would never do because if we don't have it then fill in the blank again timothy keller in his book says an idol is anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than god Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. And a counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would hardly feel worth living. You would just feel wrecked if you didn't have it. So whereas God should be in control of our lives, we've given that power over to the, the thing or the idea or the concept and feel that we have to have it or life is just meaningless, whether it's power or success 
financial stability, love, having good kids, having a good marriage, and so on. In and of themselves, those things can be good, but when they become ultimate, that's idolatry. That good thing now demands or exceeds its proper boundaries. And fears of losing it make us make foolish or even destructive choices. They generate these desires that are paralyzing and overwhelming. And we just feel so devastated when we don't have them. Idols are revealed in our lives in two basic categories of ways. One is gradually and the other is dramatically. I'll start with gradually. Gradually, an idol being revealed to us, there are some ways to do that. It's the less painful way as well, trust me. So here's a few ways that you can sort of check yourself and make sure that you are keeping God first in your life, only in your life, and not letting these things take the place of God. One is to look at what you pursue. What is it you're pursuing? And is that pursuit in a higher rank or are you spending more time pursuing that one thing than you are God? Are you pursuing having good obedient kids? Are you pursuing having more money? Are you pursuing a relationship more so than you're pursuing who should be the first love of your life? Another question is to look at what you create. What are you creating? What are you spending your time coming up with? Our creative juices should flow from a place of using the gifts that God's given us to glorify him, to further his kingdom. But are we doing it for selfish gain? Are we more focused on our creation than our creator? Yet another is to look at how we spend our money and where our money goes when we track it. Matthew 6, 21 talks about how our money flows most effortlessly toward our heart's greatest love. We cannot serve two masters. We can't be in love with both God and money. So where our money flows, that's what our heart typically desires the most. So yikes, checking the bank account, looking at our track record, where we so quickly throw our money, that can be an indication that we have a case of idolatry. Another question to ask is, what do you daydream about? What is in your imagination? Or even on the negative side, what about your nightmares? What are you afraid of? Are you afraid of financial ruin? Are you afraid of your relationship ending? Is it a nightmare to think about your kids growing up and not following God? I know it would be for me. So think about the things that you daydream about. When you're by yourself, where do your thoughts go? What do you dwell on when no one else is around? Is it on how to get further ahead? How to climb the corporate ladder? How to make an extra buck? Is it about your performance in a certain area? Or maybe even all the things that you're not doing well and on your failures. Maybe success is an idol in your life. Maybe perfectionism is an idol. Anything like that. The last one is to look at your responses and emotions. Are they proportionate to the scenario or are they disproportionate? In one of my other episodes, I talked about Jonah and his reaction to God asking him 
to go to Nineveh and then watching that city after he had finally gone, God providing a plant to grow and provide shade for him and then him being so ungrateful and so angry and even more so when God made that plant die, he just completely overreacted. How are our responses when we feel out of control? When we feel like we don't have any control of something happening in our life, do we have a meltdown, a temper tantrum? Do we react with patience and understanding that God is sovereign? That's going to be an indication right there if control is an idol in our lives. So those are some things that can help you gradually and maybe consistently determine if you have idols or counterfeit gods in your life. So now the more dramatic revealing of idolatry in your life. This is when maybe the gradual ones haven't really worked or you haven't been paying attention. And I speak from experience here. When you are blind to these things in your life, God will get your attention one way or another. So dramatically, these things are the painful times where you feel like something's being threatened and dismantled and removed and you feel just confused, discombobulated, overwhelmed. Something is just wrecking right now. And so maybe we act out. We lie, we cheat, we steal, we feel entitled, we get angry because we feel like that thing that we were holding on to so tight that caused us to feel significant or secure or loved is, is being threatened. So we need to look at our reactions to those big stress moments and consider why on earth am I reacting this way? Why do I feel so anxious? Why do I feel so angry? Or maybe why do I feel so depressed? What is it that God is asking us to lay aside or to surrender or to sacrifice? He belongs in whatever place that thing is that you're holding on to. He belongs on that throne. Not control, not success, not money, not even health. Anything that's in God's place, he will dethrone. If we aren't careful enough to evaluate and look at our hearts. And you know, that might not be very easy. On a daily basis, we're pretty blind to our own things. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't have had to tell us, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye instead of the big old log in your own? It's so much easier to see someone else's sin issues. And again, idolatry is something that runs rampant even in churches. And I, I speak as someone who struggled with performance-based spirituality before, with not a complete and proper understanding of grace, and therefore it was one that was judgmental towards others' issues and placed high expectations on my own performance and perfectionism. And so even those idols within the church have to be dismantled. The Israelites who were following God so closely after their rescue from Egypt, when their leader momentarily stepped away, they had to worship something. They had to have something to cling on to. So they got all their things together and created their own God. So you're not the only one. But it's something that, if we're not careful, history will repeat itself. So it's time to self-evaluate. Look up Psalm 51 
and ask God to reveal anything in us that doesn't belong. So how do you get rid of an idol? Well, the key is is that it can't just be rid of or removed. It has to be replaced. When you remove it, you're leaving an empty gap. Something else has to fill it. One object lesson that I recently heard was dealing with a cup. And if you pour out the cup, then at some point it's empty and has to be refilled. But if you leave the cup standing up and you allow whatever is dirty in the cup to sit there and then fill the cup up with water, all that dirt gets stirred up. That means you can see it. It's murky. It's dirty. You're getting to see what your idols are. But as more and more water pours into it, all the dirt residue ends up floating up to the top and coming out. And then what you're left with is not an empty cup, but one filled with clean water. So that can help you picture not just removing the dirt, but replacing it and leaving no room for empty gaps to be filled with anything that the world gives. So ask God, what are you calling me to live without? Are you calling me to live without a perfect image or reputation or even a perfect family or marriage? Really, God? You want me to give up that dream, that desire? He has good plans for you, and he knows what's best for you. It's not up to you to cling on to those dreams and those plans and make them happen. That's up to him. When we end up taking control over those things, they've then become an idol. 1 Corinthians 1 verses 29 through 31 say, So that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. He's the only one we're supposed to boast in. He's the only one we're supposed to brag about, be proud of, desire, and want. That's his rightful place. And he shows that in several cases in the Bible involving women. If you know anything about Leah and Rachel and Jacob, think about that story for a minute. Leah was given kind of in trickery as a wife to Jacob. Jacob idolized Rachel and he wanted her. Leah was given to him first and Leah idolized love. She would do anything to to win the love of her husband. She had son after son after son, each time saying, now he'll love me. Now he'll love me. I'll just give him another son and then he'll love me. She let go of that idol. I love verse 31 of Genesis 29 that says, when the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he opened her womb. God cared about Leah and he was the one that opened her womb. And in verse 34, an example is, Again, she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Now at last my husband will become attached to me because I've borne him three sons. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, This time I will praise the Lord. She finally realized it's because of God, not her husband. It's God and put God back in his rightful place. And I think about the woman at the well in John chapter 4. Jesus met her. He went to meet her, just her. 
and she had an encounter with him that was undeniable and real to where basically he was replacing her thirst for and desire for and idol for love and significance by saying he's the living water that all she needs is him to quench her thirst he is the real bridegroom and then even king david he kept going back to his first love Yes, he was a very sinful man, and yet the Bible says he was a man after God's own heart. And many people think, how can that be? He had idol after idol, but he kept going back to his first love and dismantling those idols and replacing them. God wants us to know how much we're already loved. So how do you identify a counterfeit? There's a saying that says that you study the real thing So you can quickly identify a counterfeit. It's not studying all the fakes out there. It's studying the real, the true, the one. So that anything else that comes in our lives, we can quickly go, "Mm, that's not from God. That's not as important as God. That's not as big of a deal as it needs to be. I don't need to react that way because God's on the throne. I don't need to focus so much on this because God will provide. I don't need to have this perfect reputation, identity, track record, because I am fearfully, wonderfully made. God made me as I am. He forgives my mistakes. The more that we spend time in the words studying who he is, the more quickly we will be able to identify the lies of the enemy and the fake gods that he's created. When I taught in the classroom, I would do a call and response with my students to regain their attention whenever they were working on something or maybe getting too noisy. (laughs) And it was a, a call and response. So I would start it, they would finish it. And I always picked a Bible verse and it was usually for the full, for a full semester at a time so that it was really ingrained in us. My favorite one by far was this one. I would say, set your mind and they would say, on things above. And that one, because we spent so much time on it every single day, multiple times a day for a full semester, that was stuck in our minds. And it's something I want to leave you with. Set your mind on things above. Set your mind on Christ. Spend time in in those spiritual disciplines of prayer, worship, because it's worship that's finally going to be what replaces the idols in your heart. Not just figuring them out intellectually and understanding, oh, I'm dealing with this idol and this idol, and I need to do A, B, and C. It's a heart transformation issue. In order to have freedom from counterfeit gods, it takes knowing the difference between intellectually understanding and obeying the rules of outward conduct and behavior to setting your heart on Christ as your peace, your Lord, your Savior, your Creator and worshiping him and him alone. Second Corinthians chapter four, verse 15. All this is for your benefit so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. I'll see you next Saturday, same time, same place.